All right, well, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2, it's on page 991 of the Bible underneath your seat. If you don't have a Bible this morning, please feel free to use that one. As I say often, if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give that as that Bible as a gift to you. So please take advantage of it. Our friends, what I'm about to do this morning, uh, especially for those of you who are new, is to simply open a passage uh, of God's Word to explain its meaning and seek to apply it to our lives. And we call this type of preaching uh, expositional preaching or expository preaching. Instead of taking a particular topic and then talking about that from the whole of the Bible, we're actually just trying to let the agenda of a particular passage of the Word of God speak to us. And it's expositional. We're exposing the agenda of the text. And we as elders often marvel how the Lord in His providence and frankly through advanced planning uses expositional preaching so fittingly and even specifically in the life of our church. Um, We have a prayer meeting tonight and lo and behold, guess what our passage is on this morning? It's on prayer. Now you might think I planned that. I wish that I was that type of sermon planning wizard, like, you know, like a ninja. Like I wish that was, no, I'm not that good. No, that's just how the Lord lined it up. And so uh, I praise him for that. But that often happens, doesn't it? The Lord uses his word and even the Holy Spirit uses the planning of the preaching of the word in specific ways in the life of the church. And I trust it'll be an encouragement to us again this morning. We're continuing our study today of uh, 1 Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy. Timothy was Paul's child in the faith. He was his son in ministry. He He accompanied Paul in his missionary journeys for the better part of a decade. As Timothy grew in maturity, Paul often would assign him to various churches that Paul had planted. Timothy would then go and kind of serve as as Paul's apostolic proxy. He represented Paul in assuring that the young churches, and let's face it, all of them were young at that point, continued to grow in the grace and stability of the gospel. In this particular case, in the early to mid-60s AD, after Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment, he traveled back to a church he dearly loved, a church he had planted, the church at Ephesus. And instead of finding the church thriving in the gospel, he found it flailing to keep its head above the water. Within the church, Paul discovered the very thing that he had predicted would happen so many years earlier to the elders of that church. False teachers had arisen from within their ranks, and they were, they were teaching actually a different doctrine than the gospel doctrine of Christ and the apostles. This, this false doctrine, Paul knew, if left unchecked, would kill the church. And so Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to oust the false teachers and seek to restore the church to biblical health. That's really what chapter 1 was all about. Paul urging Timothy not to abandon his post. Timothy, no matter how hard this task may be, stay, fulfill your gospel charge that's been entrusted to you. Now in chapter 2, Paul turns his attention from, from Timothy's pastoral ministry specifically to the church more broadly. He wants this church at Ephesus to know how to live together in the gospel that Timothy preaches to them. Friends, since Paul is writing as an apostle of Christ Jesus, we understand this instruction to the church at Ephesus to be normative for local churches until King Jesus returns. And so really this morning, what ought to happen is our collective ears ought to perk up at what Paul is about to say to us over the next two chapters. 
We ought to sit on the edge of our seats because what we're about to learn is, uh, as a church is, is what, how we can best represent Christ together through our life and mission here at Redeeming Grace. There are so many things Paul needs to cover over the next two chapters. What might he prioritize first in the life of the church? Well, let's, let's find out as we read through the first seven verses of 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith, in truth. Friends, did you catch Paul's first priority for the church at Ephesus? You don't have to be the Sherlock Holmes of biblical exegesis to catch that, do you? No, Paul tells us right at the beginning, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. You know, friends, Paul never follows up with a second of all. This is not his checklist. He's speaking of what is of first importance. What above all should be at the front of the congregation's mind. What this dysfunctional church needs to prioritize first above all is its prayer life together. You might ask, well, well, John, how do you know that Paul's talking about corporate prayer here, not personal prayer? That's a good question with a very easy answer. Remember, these first seven verses of chapter 2 are part of a larger section of the letter that goes to the end of chapter 3. And everything in chapters 2 and 3 focus on church matters. Chapter 2 focuses on the ins and outs of the church's corporate worship, the worship gathering, as we like to call it here at RGC. And that comes into view clearly starting in verse 8, where Paul gives instruction about how men and women ought to carry themselves in the gatherings of the church. And we'll look at that next week, of course. And then in chapter 3, its focus is, is about how a church should go about selecting those who, who build up the church as elders and deacons. Don't get me wrong, everything that, that the church prays for together, we as church members ought to pray for individually, in small groups, around the dinner table, and so on. In fact, what we pray for as we gather helps shape what we pray for when we scatter. There's a connection between corporate and individual prayer, but Paul's focus here, friends, is profoundly corporate. A second question you might ask is, is why? Why did Paul prioritize prayer for this struggling, false teaching, riddled church? Well, I wonder if the answer might be in the fourth word in verse 1. Paul writes, first of all, then I urge you to pray. That, that word then is often translated therefore in the, in the New Testament. It points us to the fact that Paul bases his exhortation to pray based on what he's already written before. And what had he just written? That Timothy was to wage the good warfare for the sake of the gospel. He was to urge the false teachers to recover sound doctrine in conformity to the gospel. Paul wants the Ephesian church to recenter itself in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. 
And in light of all that, what should be the church's first priority? It should pray together. Friends, Paul understands that when we gather together as a church and we pray together as a church, the Lord begins to knit our hearts together in love for one another and grants us a common desire for God's will about the things for which we pray. It really shouldn't surprise us at all that Paul wants the church at Ephesus to prioritize praying for these, these big gospel purposes in the world. He wants them to unite around this saving message of the gospel. Do you know he wants us to do the same? He wants churches like Redeeming Grace Church and, and Whitten Avenue Bible Church to pray for our gospel witness and our mission together to make Christ known. Paul understands that the church's recovery of gospel centrality, friends, is not just a doctrinal thing. It's a heart thing. It's a what makes a church tick thing. We as a church can't claim to love the gospel but be apathetic toward others who need to know King Jesus. To be a gospel people is to be a people on mission together. So really that kind of expresses what I think is the main idea of these first seven verses of chapter two. Here's the main idea of 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7 that I pray will be the main idea of this sermon. We must prioritize far-reaching, gospel-focused prayer together as a church. We must prioritize far-reaching, gospel-focused prayer together as a church. Two points this morning. Very difficult to get two sections from this text. It's really one tight argument, but I did my best to divide it up helpfully. Number one, pray broadly. See that in verses one and two. Number two, pray confidently. We'll see that in verses three to seven. Well, but I pray that the Lord might help us here at Redeeming Grace to be the very type of church that he called the church at Ephesus to be. That we would be a church that prioritizes this type of far-reaching gospel-centered prayer together. Oh, I hope that we will be motivated to pray this way because we understand our God to have a global purpose, to gather a people from around the world for the praise of his name for all of eternity. And he's given us as a church the privilege of participating in this purpose for the world. Let's look at this first point. Number one, pray broadly. Friends, when you read these first seven verses of 1 Timothy 2, you, you can't help but be struck by the fact that, that Paul really wants the church at Ephesus to imitate God's love for all people by praying for all people. That's what he says in verse 1. Paul urges the church to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all people. And friends, this is not a, a casual take-it-or-leave-it thing. In, in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul likewise urged Timothy, same word, he urged Timothy to remain in Ephesus. And now in verse 1 of chapter 2, he urges the church to pray for all people. Now, now, at first glance, this task may seem impossible, right? There's really no way for us as a local church to pray for everyone that lives on the earth, unless it's just this broad blanket prayer. But, it, but in this context, it seems that Paul isn't really talking about everyone numerically, but everyone categorically. We're regularly to be praying for all types of people. In fact, we're regularly to be praying all types of prayers, for all types of people. Verse 2 is the dead giveaway on this point. Paul gives instruction about a specific type 
of individuals we should pray for, namely those who have authority in our society, kings and those in high position. It's like Paul is reminding us, hey, don't just pray for people like you. Don't just pray for those in your own station of life. Pray for all types of people. Even pray for the kings. What Paul is after is a breadth to our church's corporate prayer life, a globalness to our supplications, a universality to our intercessions, an inclusiveness to our thanksgivings. Did you notice that those types of prayer that Paul listed are listed in the plural? Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings, all plural. God intends these types of prayer to be frequent in the life of a church. Friends, Paul does not want the church to become insular, to become exclusivist, to navel gaze and have our eyes only inward and not lift them up outward toward those who need Jesus. This breadth is really Paul's theme throughout all seven verses. To use a baseball analogy, he's saying, don't take your eye off this ball. We ought to pray for all people because God desires to save all people, verse 4. And because Christ gave himself as a ransom for all, verse 6. In verse 7, Paul bookends the all people of verse 1 by saying that he's been appointed a teacher to who? To the Gentiles, which of course is all the nations of the world. It's possible, friends, that the false teachers there in Ephesus and their myths and their endless genealogies referenced in chapter 1 had somehow limited the scope of who can receive God's salvation. Perhaps they said it's for the Jews only. Maybe, maybe they said it's for some special ancestral line in light of those genealogies. We don't know for sure, but Paul wants us to see that God's heart of love, friends, pulses for all people. The scope of salvation is as wide as the world. Therefore, so should be the scope of our prayers together. But Paul focuses the church's prayer eyes on a particular type of people in verse 2. He zeroes in on prayer for kings and all who are in high positions. As God's people cultivate in their corporate prayer life a concern for the people of the world, we ought not to neglect to pray for our civic and governmental leaders, for our authorities. After all, there might not be a group of people in the world who more directly affect the life of the church than those who govern. There are two really big biblical presuppositions that stand behind Paul's instruction to the church. The first big presupposition is that, friends, prayer affects God's purposes in the world for his people. Prayer is God's ordained means to accomplish his ordained ends in the world. God is sovereign and he's chosen to work through prayer. So friends, when we pray for earthly authority, we don't offer up mere wishes and somehow roll the spiritual dice and, and hope we get lucky with a good leader. No, we petition the one who unleashes his sovereign will through our prayers. The second big presupposition is that we understand the king's heart to be firmly in God's hands. Our God is sovereign over kings, over nations, over local municipalities. He's sovereign over the United States. He's sovereign over Goodyear. When we pray for the king, we pray to the king's king, don't we? We pray to the president's potentate. 
<laughs> we, we pray for the governor's governor. We pray to the governor's governor, not for him. He's okay. All earthly authority derives from the authority of the king of heaven and earth. That's the second big presupposition. And in God's providence in this age, he has given civil government the power of the sword. Friends, it's the state's responsibility to keep the peace, to protect its citizens, and to preserve good order under the law. God has given governing authorities the, the power, the responsibility to punish evil and promote good. That's when government functions at its best. So, so when the church prays for the welfare of our leaders, we seek the welfare of our neighbors, don't we? Praying this way is one way we model love and seek the common good of all of our fellow citizens. We ought to pray that our government leaders dispense their leadership wisely and for causes that are just and right and good. Notice why. Why do we pray that way? We ought to pray for those in authority over us so that we, why? We can live the good life? So that the American dream isn't impeded by the rising gas prices? So that America achieves greatness? Again, Paul's clarity is so helpful in, in verse 2. We're to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, the primary reasons we pray for our leaders isn't purely personal or even patriotic. Paul says, pray for your leaders so that there might be favorable conditions for Christians to live godly lives. And then you add in verse 3 where Paul writes that, that God desires all people to be saved. And it's evident, friends, that Paul is looking at this entire issue of governmental authorities through gospel-tinted lenses. Paul has his evangelistic gospel glasses on. Our prayers for our leaders are to the end that God moves his gospel forward through the church. Presumably, we ought to pray for our leaders' salvation as part of these prayers too, since God desires all people to be saved. The most basic fundamental benefit that good government can give us is peace, freedom from war, and civil strife. It's within a, a well-ordered society that the church in peacefulness and quietness is free to pursue our worship together without hindrance. It's not that we can't pursue godliness and dignity and holiness in times of societal upheaval, but the challenge is, is so much greater in those times, isn't it? When our leaders abandon causes that are right or just or fail to make, you know, to make and enforce laws that would lead to a just and civil society, it's not just that society deteriorates. The work of the gospel is often impeded. Just think of the situation in Ukraine right now. Think of how one leader's decision is affecting the lives of millions of Christians and hundreds of of churches, not to mention the rest of the Ukrainian population. No doubt the, the Russian invasion and bombings have made it difficult for Christians to meet for worship. It's disrupted their life together. It's impeded their discipling of one another and their mission together as the local church. It's, it's an extreme example, isn't it? But perhaps a helpful one to visualize what Paul is talking about here. Now, several years ago, I remember um, talking to my friend Mark, actually hearing him tell a story uh, Mark pastored for years in Shanghai, China. And one Sunday, as he was preaching, the, 
the state police entered the facility during the worship service, and, and two of them stood right in the center aisle for the entire sermon. I hope they knew English, because I'm sure they heard a great sermon. It was an inter international church. Um, but they, they were trying to intimidate the church, weren't they? They were trying to impede the gospel preaching. Well, right now in China, it's state-sponsored persecution of, of Christ's church continues, as it does in many places around the world. It's so easy for us, isn't it, here in the States to take for granted the, the religious liberty that the Lord has given us here. I think one of our primary prayers ought to be that our leaders would help to preserve that blessing. Paul says we ought to pray that our leaders lead in such a way that the situation is ripe for the, for the church to thrive. We ought to pray for our leaders so that the situation is ripe for the church to thrive. It's not a selfish prayer because ultimately our desire to flourish is so that we might glorify God fully, that we might build each other up effectively, that we might evangelize faithfully. Beloved, I wonder, are you looking at the government and at our leaders through such a gospel lens? If you're a Republican, do you want our Democrat president to succeed in his leadership so that our society flourishes, so that there's a peaceful context for the gospel? Are you intent, on the other hand, on his failure so that your party might win in the next election? If you're a Democrat, do you want our Republican governor to lead in righteous ways for the good of Arizona's citizens? Or is your posture one of just resolute opposition? Our friends, we live in such a cynical time, don't we? It seems that the posture of many uh, toward our leaders, even, even of many Christians, is, is not one of love and prayer, but antagonism. We live in an age of outrage. Social media and the 24-7 news cycle and political networking all stoke the flames. We can't ha hardly have a political discussion without vilifying the other side. We can't hardly think about the other political party without disdaining them or demeaning the president that we didn't vote for. But beloved, consider the posture that the Bible commends for Christians. The biblical authors seem to lean consistently in the direction of seeking the good of our government authorities, of obeying them, of honoring them even. In Romans 13, Paul wrote, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Friends, except in those rare times when government leaders require us to do something that King Jesus expressly forbids or forbids us to do something that King Jesus expressly requires, we are to submit to our leaders for the sake of our gospel witness. In a parallel passage, Peter in 1 Peter 5 exhorts Christians, honor the emperor. Friends, unless you're tempted to think that Paul and, and Timothy and Peter had it easy, think again. Guess who was the Roman emperor likely at the time of the writing of 1 Timothy? It was the Roman emperor Nero. Nero was cruel and hostile toward Christians. In 64 AD, Nero intentionally burned Rome so that he could then rebuild it in his own image. And he blamed Christians for the arson. 
conducting mass executions and killing Christians for sport in the arena. Paul himself, in just a few short years after writing this letter, would be beheaded in Rome during the reign of this man. Brothers and sisters, if there is any king more undeserving of prayer, I'd like for you to show me. And yet, Paul exhorts the church, I urge you, first of all, pray for all people, even an emperor like Nero. Brothers and sisters, in this age of outrage, what better way is there to honor our leaders than to pray for them? What better way to seek their good and the good of our neighbors for the ultimate good of the gospel than to intercede for them boldly before the Lord? You know, having this godly posture doesn't mean that we have to like our leaders. It doesn't mean that we check our brains at the door or we don't have political opinions. It doesn't mean that Christians abandon the public square or the political process, not at all. But when the church prays for the state, it's a, it's a public acknowledgement. What we're doing when we pray for our leaders, we are acknowledging publicly, confessing that the weapon that we wield for, for good is not the sword, but the spirit. It's a corporate confession that our mission is not to change society or to form a political voting block, but to advance the gospel and make disciples until King Jesus returns. And so our prayers for our leaders are directed to that end. Well, friends, I hope it's clear to you by now that the truth of 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 is the reason that I and our elders take time each Sunday morning in the pastoral prayer to pray for those who represent us and lead us in our government. Like this morning, we pray for the most granular leadership in our, in our county school boards and in our local mayors and the most powerful leadership in the President of the United States and the justices of the Supreme Court. Several of you have told me that, that our praying this way has helped shape your perspective about our government and about our leaders. Some of you have said that even that the, the pastoral prayers have convicted you about anger in your heart about President Trump or President Biden. Well, that's never my goal, I promise. Never my goal. But I'm grateful the Lord is using it to shape our corporate tone and our corporate conscience about these things. You know, believe it or not, friends, I have political opinions. I even have strong political opinions. But friends, when we come together as the embassy of King Jesus, we do not gather under the banner of the donkey or of the elephant or even old glory, but instead we represent a far greater kingdom underneath the banner of the king to whom all earthly kings will one day bow. Here's what I've learned as I prepare, prepare to pray each week. It's difficult to maintain a heart of anger toward a leader when you turn your heart to pray for him. In many ways, not only does praying for those in authority over us contribute to the working of God's purposes for the gospel in the world, it actually shapes our lives to be distinct and godly in a dark world that so desperately needs to know where true hope is found. We must pray broadly. Number two, we as a church must pray confidently. You see that in the rest of these verses. Pray confidently. In other words, when we pray far-reaching, gospel-focused prayer for all types of people, such as kings and government officials, we can be confident that what we're doing, friends, is in line with God's purposes. Paul writes in verse 3, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. 
In other words, this is the type of prayer that elicits God's smile. He delights in it. Why? Because it's a reflection of his own heart. Paul, just like he did in the very first verse of the letter, emphasizes the fact that God is our Savior. He brought salvation through the person and work of Christ. And gospel-focused prayer for all people pleases this saving God because he, in verse 4, look, desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We can pray not only confident of his favor, but confident that this type of prayer holds promise to be answered because God is in the, the business of saving sinners of all types. Verse 4 has often been confusing for many Christians. We think to ourselves, if God so desires all men to be saved and to know the truth, and he has the authority and power to give salvation to every person, well, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he just do that? It's a tough question, isn't it? Some have answered this question by saying that as much as God desires salvation for all people, he has a greater desire, and that's to preserve free will. As good as salvation is, the greater good is the freedom of the human will to accept him or reject him. Many godly Christians hold this view, but I don't think that answer is sufficient. The Bible's clear teaching is that the human will is in bondage to sin. As sons and daughters of Adam, we are dead in trespasses and sins, like no spiritual pulse within us at all. In order to be saved, God has to grant us the new birth, the resurrecting power of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who makes us alive and, and transforms our hard, impenetrable heart to be a soft heart so that we voluntarily respond to the gospel by turning from our sin in faith in Christ. Others will say that the word desire here is, is talking more about God's wish, what he would want to happen, all things considered. Well, friends, it, it is true. Yes, God loves all humanity. In Ezekiel 18 and Ezekiel 33, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, even the death of the wicked. So turn to me and be saved. In a sense, God does want all people who live to turn to him in faith. And so he, he commands us, he commends the gospel to go out freely to all without discrimination, without reservation. But in this case, in this case here in 1 Timothy 2, as is so often the case, context is king. Context is king. It gives the clue to understand what Paul is saying. Paul has already used the adjective all, hasn't he, in this discussion. The church is to pray for all types of people. And so exegetically, it carries the same meaning in verse 4. God desires all all types of people to be saved. He's not limiting his purposes to the Jews only. Paul reiterates in verse 7, he's a teacher of the Gentiles. Salvation's for the world. God in his great mercy is gathering a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship him through his son, the Lord Jesus. One of my seminary professors, uh, Tom Schreiner, said it this way. Paul's all here is all people without distinction not all people without exception. All people without distinction, not all people without exception. 
In other words, God doesn't desire that, that some types of people be saved and not others. That some ethnicities of people be saved and not others. That some colors or races of people be saved and not others. That some classes of people be saved and not others. No, he desires all kinds of people to be saved by his grace. His purpose of mercy from eternity past has been that all people receive his salvation. As to the question of why God does not save every person, we simply have to bow, don't we, before his sovereign purpose and acknowledge that we don't have every answer perfectly. We know that God magnifies his glory in both salvation and judgment. In the purpose of his will, he has mercifully chosen some for salvation through the work of his son. Friends, in light of the depth of our rebellion against God, our treason against him, the best question to ask is, is not why does God save some and not others, but rather why would God choose to save anyone at all? Instead of questioning the scope of God's mercy, we're, we're meant to marvel at the scope of God's mercy. To rejoice that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, 1 Timothy 2.4 reminds us that as we as a, as a church family even believe in the doctrine of election, that God chooses some for salvation, that this doctrine does not contradict the universal offer of the gospel or provide us with an excuse for opting out of evangelism or world missions. No, in fact, it bolsters, it motivates that very desire because we know God's heart of mercy beats for all peoples. And so we pray for all peoples and we go to all peoples so that some might be saved. Beloved, this is why we pray each Sunday morning for God's work, not just in our own church or even in our own city. We pray for God's work around the world. It's why we pray that the gospel goes forth in power through churches, for instance, in the United Arab Emirates. It's why we pray for churches in the Ukraine that they might endure this trial. It's why we pray for churches in China and in India and Kenya and England and in, in Canada and Louisville and Richmond. We pray for all people, because God desires all people to be saved. This is one reason why our Sunday evening prayer meetings are primarily focused on prayer for our mission together. It's clear from this passage, isn't it, that one of the church's highest priorities should be praying for people to be saved. We want to see the gospel transform lives in our city, in our neighborhoods. We want to see it advance powerfully in hard places in the world. So friends, let's, let's make our Sunday evening prayer gatherings a priority. Let's make them a priority because the Scripture makes corporate prayer to these ends a priority for the local church. Don't be bashful to send me prayer requests for gospel conversations that you're having or, or, or for your lost family and friends. And then let's come together, even tonight, to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people knowing that it's these very people that our Lord desires to save. There are two reasons yet in this passage that we as a church can pray confidently for all people to be saved. You see him in verse 5? I love that corporate look down right at the text. That's beautiful. That was awesome. The synchronized Bible reading. 
Paul gives us a double foundation for God's work in verses 5 and 6. Here's the, here's the twofold basis for it. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. What a contrast between verses 4 and 5. God desires all people to be saved, but there's only one God. There's only one mediator. In fact, the reason that God wants all people to be saved is that there is only one God, and there's only one mediator. All types of people are part of God's saving plan, but each do not have their own God, do they? There's only one. Suppose for a second in your imagination that there were many gods, that polytheism were actually a thing. Take the pantheon of Roman or Greek gods as an example, or maybe a religion like Hinduism, where there are literally millions of deities that Hindus Hindus worship. How in the world would the gods decide who on earth worshipped who in heaven? How would they decide the allegiance to the deities? Well, maybe they'd play a cosmic game of paper, rock, scissors, right? To kind of partition things out in the world. Or maybe a, a, a cosmic battle, right? To decide who the top god really is. We see that all throughout the mythologies. In other words, if there are many gods, no single deity can claim that he inherently deserves the world's worship. But then contrast that with the God of the Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. In other words, friends, monotheism, monotheism is the only credible foundation for missions. It's the basis for all people entering into saving faith because God is unique. He's the creator and sovereign above all others. He has no rivals. He can say with credibility, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Friends, the exclusivity of God, that there is only one God and no other, makes the inclusivity of his saving purposes possible, that he wants all people to be saved. But monotheism is really only one part of that foundation, isn't it? Paul says, there's not only one God, there's one mediator. It's the man, Christ Jesus. It's almost like Paul anticipates rejection or like objections that the Ephesians might make or that people in our culture might make today. Oh, well, I'm no polytheistic pagan. I'm a monotheist, but I'm a Jew. I believe in the one God. I practice Judaism. I don't believe that that Jesus was the Messiah. I believe we're still waiting on him. Or, oh yeah, I'm a monotheist. That's why I'm a Muslim. I bow the knee to Allah. Or, I'm a monotheist, yes, but I believe that there's a road to the one God in every world religion. After all, who am I to judge? One way is better than the other. You have your truth, I have mine. They all lead to God Surely the one God understands and surely he'll save those who sincerely try to get to to him in their own way. Paul's answer is that not only is there one God, there's only one mediator between him and us. There's only one go-between. There's only one bridge. It's the man Christ Jesus. What's a mediator do? 
Well, a mediator arbitrates a relationship between two parties. He reconciles two parties that are disagreeing. You know, we heard a lot about a need for a mediator in this recent baseball lockout. And that was awful, right, for you baseball fans? Spring training got cut in half. Not even be able to see it. It stinks. People kept calling, hey, there needs to be a mediator. Get, get the players and the owners together with a mediator, with an arbitrator, so that we can get this figured out. There needs to be a bridge between them. But friends, in the case of God and humanity, the reconciliation that's needed is not between equals. It's between the flawlessly righteous and infinitely good creator and we creatures made in his image who've spurned our loving father and committed treason against our good king. It's not that we need a mediator to negotiate in our behalf. We need a mediator to bridge the infinite canyon between us and God. We need to be reconciled to God in order to live, but we can't reconcile ourselves. We can't work for the reconciliation of ourselves or self-atone for it or, or do penance or anything like that. We need a mediator to take us to him. Why is, was, was Christ Jesus so ne- uniquely qualified? Enter 1 Timothy 1.5. Paul says there's only one mediator uniquely qualified to reconcile God and man. There's only one mediator, friends, with the necessary credentials on his resume to reconcile God to man and man to God. It's the God-man. It's the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. Why is our Lord Jesus so uniquely qualified? Paul says it's because of his person and because of his work. Paul emphasizes Jesus' person by calling him the man, Christ Jesus. And he emphasizes his work by telling us that King Jesus, the man, gave his life as a ransom to purchase our redemption to God. You know, friends, in this very letter, lest you think Paul is not emphasizing Jesus' divinity, Paul in this letter has already emphasized that Jesus is God. We saw it in his opening greeting at the very beginning of the, of the book, of the letter, where grace, mercy, and peace flow from both God, the Savior, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. In verse 15 of chapter 1, Paul wrote that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, which implies what? His preexistence as God before coming into the world. But here in verse 5, Paul assumes Jesus' deity, but he emphasizes his humanity. Why? Because a mediator must be able to represent both sides equally. The only person who could bridge the gap to God is God. And the only person who could stand in our place as the perfect Savior and substitute is a man. We needed a second Adam to represent us. And this is what we have in the man, Christ Jesus. Not half God, half man, or some sort of other weird cocktail, but God in human flesh. Fully God, fully man. No one is qualified to be our mediator but the man, King Jesus. And not only is is Christ Jesus' saving resume impeccable because of his person, but look look at what Paul says. It's because of his work. Paul writes that the man Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We know what a ransom is. 
right? Hijackers still today hold people for ransom. It's the price paid for the release of slaves or captives. The word that Paul uses here implies that humanity is in bondage to sin and death, unable to save ourselves. And that the price paid for our deliverance, well, it was the death of Christ on the cross in our place. Friends, Paul did not come up with this idea that that Jesus is our ransom. He didn't come up with it himself. He got it from Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, I did not come. The Son of Man came not into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What was the price that Jesus paid? What was the ransom price? The Bible clearly teaches that the wages for sin is death. The price on our head was our life. We deserved eternal death and eternal condemnation and separation from God for our law-breaking. But along came Christ Jesus, who kept the law for us, and then He willingly paid the price to God for our deliverance by what? By dying the death that we deserve. You know, actually, if you were reading the Greek of this, and I know not many of you are going to do that, and that's just fine, but actually Paul adds a preposition in front of the normal Greek word for ransom here in verse 6. He literally says that Christ Jesus is our in place of ransom. He's our substitute ransom who gave himself in behalf of all. Friends, picture it like this. The tsunami of God's just wrath is hurtling like a runaway freight train at us. We are utterly helpless to stop it. We'll be crushed eternally on the last day because of our sin. Left to ourselves, we're doomed. But just at at the right moment, at the proper time, the way Paul says it, Christ Jesus in love steps in front of the tsunami and he says, get behind me. Get behind me. He shields us from the wrath of God. He absorbs the tsunami of God's wrath in our place. He paid the price with his own blood instead of ours. And he set us free. He's our in place of ransom. And then to verify that God accepted this transaction, Christ Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And he ascended to heaven, where even now he represents us as a man before the Father. My non-Christian friend, this is why we boldly preach that Christ Jesus is the only way to have for you to have a relationship with God. Only he has the requisite qualifications. It's because of who he is, and what he did. It's by virtue of his person as the God-man and by virtue of his work as a ransom in our place. Well, friends, I pray that you would give your life today if you're not a Christian, that you would give your life even today by faith to this Christ. Lay hold on him by faith. Entrust your life to him and you can know that he paid your ransom too. Friends, how can we be confident? How can we as a church have full confidence that God hears this type of far-reaching gospel-centered prayer that Paul calls for? Well, because we pray in line with God's heart. God desires all people to be saved. And Christ Jesus, our mediator, gave himself as a ransom for these all. Did you see that? Oh, it's not that he loaded the gun, but we had to pull the trigger. No, he did it all. Paul 
is saying that Jesus paid it all. He did all the work. This is redemption accomplished and applied for all who trust in him. Oh, friend, I pray that we would come boldly before the throne of grace, that we would pray big, broad prayers, knowing that he hears us. And as we're about to sing, even now he mediates this relationship. He ever lives and pleads for us. You see how our theology, I've covered a lot of ground today, haven't I? This this passage is packed, dense with a lot of theology. But do you see how practical it is? This theology of the crucified Christ motivates, it compels our prayer life together. Our confidence in Jesus should fuel big, broad prayers. And it should motivate us to be a gospel people on mission for our King. Our friends, may God give us grace as we work and as we pray for the salvation of all people. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are the one God and that your Son is the one mediator between us and you the man Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, we thank you for the plan of salvation that you hatched in eternity past, that you accomplished in history, and that you have applied to our hearts through the power of your Spirit. Oh, Lord, I pray that in light of all that you've done for us in Christ, that we might be a people of prayer. Father, that we wouldn't just guard the good deposit that we talked about in chapter 1 and emphasize sound doctrine, as important as that is, but that, Father, that we would be a people with a heart to take this, this pure gospel to all who need it. That we would be a people on mission together, praying for the work of the King around the world. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would use this sermon today to challenge us, not to encourage us, to awake us from lethargy if necessary. Oh, Father, make us a people that prioritizes this type of prayer, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.